Thank you, and uh, thank you for the invitation to come to this conference. Uh, I'm very grateful to be here to speak to you about Aquinas as master of uh, patristic wisdom, the Greeks. I also need to say hello to my two sons, John and George, who are up at 6.30 in Connecticut. Um, I love you very much, and I will see you. Uh, I'll see you very soon. Okay. When St. Thomas Aquinas lived at the convent of San Domenico Maggiore in Naples near the end of his life, he often prayed in the chapel of St. Nicholas before the other friars rose for matins. One morning between 1272 and 1274, according to the biographer William of Tocco, the sacristan Dominic of Caserta witnessed a miraculous conversation between Aquinas and the crucifix in the chapel. The story has become a beloved part of his hagiography. Christ spoke from the crucifix. You have written well of me, Thomas. What reward would you receive from me for your labors? Aquinas replied, non nisi te domine, nothing but you, Lord. After this encounter, Toko notes, Aquinas wrote the Tertia Pars of the Summa Theologiae, devoted in large part to the mystery of the incarnation. Despite this story's popularity, what has largely escaped notice is that the crucifix with which Thomas conversed and which remains on display today in the chapel that was once his cell is a Byzantine icon, a classic Duecento crucifix. Here it is, with Christ flanked by Mary and John and beneath them two much smaller Dominicans, possibly according to art historian Elizabeth Ranieri, St. Dominic and Peter Martyr. The icon could have been made in Pisa or right in Naples. Both housed a significant Greek population in the 13th century with artisans skilled in such work. For all the significance of the crucifix, its role in Aquinas' hagiography, its importance as an object of devotion, and the fact that it can still be venerated today in Aquinas' cell, the Byzantine character of the icon seems to have been immediately forgotten. The earliest images of this miracle, such as Sassetta's vision of St. Thomas Aquinas, which you see there on the left, and Filippo Lippi's fresco in the Santa Maria Sopra Minerva on the right, depict Thomas before a three-dimensional crucifix. Thus, the icon is a salutary visual analogy for the Greek patristic character of Aquinas' thought, which has been at times overlooked. When one thinks of Aquinas as a master of Greek patristic wisdom, one may rightly think of, for example, John Damascene, who Torell calls a kind of crossroads for the fathers of the East, or Pseudo-Dionysius, a critical source for Thomas's metaphysics and mystical theology, or his reception of conciliar texts, which was unprecedented among his contemporaries. Yet nowhere is Thomas's mastery of Greek patristic exegetical tradition clearer than in the Glossa Continua Super Quator Evangelia, popularly known as the Catena Aurea, where he arranged Latin and Greek texts in a continuous commentary on the Gospels. It is by now well known that Thomas commissioned translations of Greek sources for the final three volumes of the Catena, and indeed in 1956, I.T. Eschmann observed that the Catena Aurea marked, quote, a turning point in the development of Aquinas' theology 
as well as in the history of Catholic dogma, end quote, due to these sources. Yet research into the theological substance of these contributions deserves greater attention. So in this presentation, I'll propose that a renewed study of the Greek sources of the Catena Aurea can deepen our understanding of Aquinas as master of Greek patristic wisdom. The presentation has three parts. I first describe the milieu of Greek and Latin exchange in which Thomas grew up and which gave rise to the Catena Aurea. Then I describe some of the Greek sources Aquinas acquired for the project. And finally, I consider a specific Greek father, Cyril of Alexandria, and show how Thomas's access to Cyril's commentary on Luke enriched Aquinas's understanding of the life of grace. And on this point, I'll say something brief now. It has been well established that Cyril is a resource for Aquinas's mature Christology. Um, Aquinas was the only 13th century theologian to consult Cyril in his Christology. Um, and this Christology emphasizes uh, Christ's full humanity, consubstantially united with the second person of the Trinity. Uh, but the Catena Aurea um, helps us appreciate, I think, Thomas's reading of this conciliar Christology um, in Cyril's biblical interpretation. Okay, so the first part is historical context. And uh, I will say, uh, you know, Father um, Giambrone yesterday said that, you know, Naples was but a blip in Thomas's life. And I think, you know, it's true that Paris was very important, but per me, Tommaso è siciliano. Um, so Thomas lived during a period of intense exchange between Latin and Greek polities, cultures, and ecclesial authorities. He was born and raised in the kingdom of Sicily. He spent five years at the studium in Naples, which enjoyed, according to Weisheipel, a peculiarly Sicilian intermingling of Latin, Greek, and Arab cultures. It was in Naples that Thomas first encountered Dominican friars at the monastery where he would later have his famous vision. And this friary itself is a testament to the intermingling of cultures in the region. It had been a Basilian monastery during the Byzantine rule of Naples before becoming Benedictine and then Dominican. And I have it on good authority that if you go into the sacristy and open the broom closet, you can still see some of the, the Byzantine work on the ceiling there. Someone needs to tell me if that's true. The Latin sack of Constantinople in 1204 brought about heightened animosity between Greeks and Latins, but also new aspirations to reunion. And the Franciscan and Dominican orders played a major role in reunion discussions. The mendicant commitment to poverty impressed Byzantine emperors, popes capitalized on their freedom to travel, and some mendicants spoke Greek and were willing to translate texts. Disputes concerned matters such as papal supremacy, the filioque, azymes, and purgatory. And in many cases, patristic interpretation of gospel passages was of paramount importance to these disputes. Thomas may have been familiar with the 1234 disputes at Nicaea and Nymphaeum, for which the Pope dispatched two Franciscans and two Dominicans, one perhaps Hugh of Saint Cher, to the east with volumes of patristic texts going with them. He certainly knew of the 1252 Contra Graecos, a sophisticated text authored by an anonymous Dominican living in Constantinople. 
And Thomas knew intimately the Libellus de Fide Sancte Trinitatis, Nicholas of Cotron's catena of patristic quotations supporting Latin positions on disputed matters. Thomas's Contra Aurores Grecorum is an exam uh, examination of the Libellus completed at Pope Urban IV's request in 1264. The story of Thomas and the Greeks, at least as his, as his earliest biographers tell it, usually ends here with the Contra Aurores and the praise of Thomas as a great refuter of Greek errors. Yet the Catena Aurea offers another perspective on Thomas's contact with Greek tradition, one that is far more irenic and I would argue more substantive. In 1261, Thomas had been appointed uh, lector to the Dominican Priory in Orvieto, and Pope Urban IV moved the Curia to Orvieto in 1262, and Thomas became immersed in the activity of the papal court, which included a renewed focus on the Greek East. Emperor Michael VIII Paleologos, who had recaptured Constantinople from Latin occupation in July of 1261, reached out repeatedly to Urban IV about the possibility of union. He wrote that he, quote, found the Holy Roman Church of God to be not different from ours in the divine dogma of its faith, but feeling and chanting these things almost with us, end quote. The Pope, initially uninterested in the emperor's overtures, gradually warmed to the idea of reunion. It was in this context that Urban commissioned of Aquinas the Catena Aurea, and when we examine the Greek sources that Aquinas had translated and their theological substance, it is evident that this project was, on the one hand, a testament to a life lived in close proximity to Greek culture and to Thomas's lifelong zeal for acquiring new sources, and on the other hand, an occasion of prompting a deepening in Aquinas's thought, especially on the mystery of the incarnation. Thomas did not have a reading knowledge of Greek, and he attests to commissioning translations of Greek texts in the dedicatory epistle of the Catena and Markham, which is the first uh, text on your handout. He says, to make this commentary of the saints more complete and continuous, I had some Greek commentaries translated into Latin, which I included among the commentaries of the Latin doctors indicating their names. Until recently, scholars have cited um, Gottfried Guinan's observation that Thomas quotes 22 Latin fathers and 57 Greek fathers throughout the Catena, and this is widely cited, but uh, given current research, the numbers are changing. Since 2006, Martin Morard and a team of scholars have been publishing a continuously updated uh, and annotated, um, um, excuse me, lost my place a continuously updated and annotated edition of the Catena at the homepage Glossa Scripturae Sacrae Electronicae. Here it is, a uh, really lovely website with um, also uh, uh, Hugh of St. Charles Postilla and some other resources as well. Um, and they aim to produce the first critical edition of the Catena Aurea. They're examining over 12,000 passages and identifying the authority quoted and the source text. And sometimes this means identifying you know, a catena from which a text came and then also the original text itself. Um, I wanted to show you a little bit of kind of the riches of this site. 
So on the left, you have the, the biblical text. On the right, you have uh, the, the fathers arranged by Thomas in this commentary. And then I've shown you this footnote where um, Merard and his team, uh, depending on sort of who's working on what, are, are going and finding uh, where these texts originate um, in the fathers. So this uh, quotation from Cyril comes from Cyril's scolia on Luke uh, through Nicetus of Heraclea, who I'll talk about in just a minute. Uh, sometimes this is a very simple process and sometimes it's incredibly complicated, but they're doing a wonderful job sort of tracing these sources. So in Morard's assessment, 59% of the Greek texts in the Catena Aurea had not been translated prior to the project or were retranslated for the project. And many of these texts come from two important Byzantine sources. The first is the explanations of the Holy Gospels produced by Theophylact of Akrid, who died in probably 1125 or 26, a titan of the flourishing intellectual milieu in 11th century Byzantium. As Archbishop of Bulgaria, he wrote some of the period's most popular scripture commentaries. Theophylact is the second most frequently cited Greek in the Catena Aurea after John Chrysostom, and it's almost though in Theophylact's commentaries, Thomas receives another Catena because of Theophylact's skill for compiling and synthesizing. Aquinas formally introduced the work of Theophylact to the Latin world, and even though he only cites him by name once outside the Catena Aurea, calling him Quidem Graicus, Scilicet Theophylactus, he cites him several times in the Tertia Pars and over a hundred times in his commentary on John. It's evident that Thomas valued Theophylact as an authority apart from the Catena Aurea then. Another key source is Nicetus of Heraclea's um, Catena on Luke and John. Nicetus was a prolific Catenist and a friend of Theophylact of Acrid. And through Nicetus, Aquinas read passages from Greek fathers such as Athanasius, Eusebius of Caesarea, Origen, Titus of Bostra, Gregory of Nyssa, Maximus the Confessor, and a handful of anonymous Graeci, including Severus of Antioch and Theodoret of Cyrus. Cyril of Alexandria's exegesis also features prominently, and Aquinas incorporates around 400 passages from Cyril, um, many from Cyril's commentary on Luke. This new access to Cyril is especially important. Cyril was known in the Latin West primarily through conciliar collections or florilegia citing his polemical and dogmatic works, such as the second letter to Nestorius, endorsed by Ephesus, and the 12 chapters of the third letter to Nestorius, endorsed by the Council of Constantinople um, too. Cyril's scripture commentaries, on the other hand, hardly circulated. Thus, when Thomas brought Cyril's commentary on Luke to the Latin West, via the Catena Aurea, it was a watershed moment. Not only was this the West's first substantive glimpse of Cyril as gospel exegete, but the commentary is a crucial counterpart to Aquinas' reception of Cyril's dogmatic Christology via the ecumenical councils for two reasons. First, as is the case with all the early Christological controversies, scriptural interpretation was at the heart of the controversy. Cyril's first work against Nestorius, known as the Five Tomes, 
is a critical examination of Nestorius's sermons, which sparked the controversy. Second, Cyril's commentary on Luke dates from the end of the year 430. Just one year prior, Cyril had been actively uh, began writing and preaching against Nestorius. So we have this remarkable parallelism between Cyril's writing and Thomas's reading. As Cyril writes against Nestorius, he's commenting on Luke. As Thomas reads the conciliar text that preserves Cyril's thought, uh, he's also accessing Cyriline exegesis in Nicetus of Heraclea. I liken this to a sketch in the chiaroscuro style, in which the interplay between light and shade heightens the drama of the subject, and the shaded portions push the viewer's eye to contemplate the detail and delicacy of places the light falls. You have the conciliar pronouncements, and you have the exegesis. Um, here's one small example, and this is number two on your handout. Cyril takes the occasion of the transfiguration to mount a clear defense against Nestorius. A voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son, and Cyril interprets it thus. He says, um, so first you have Ambrose, and then Cyril saying, how should men suppose him who is really son to be made or created when God the Father thundered from above, this is my beloved son? As if he said, as if God said, not one of my sons, but he who is truly and by nature my son, according to whose example the others are adopted. Cyril is insisting here on the singularity of Christ's person and texts from Chalcedon, Ephesus, and Constantinople too um, accuse Nestorius of positing two sons in Christ, joined in a conjunction or in a relational participation. Cyril condemns this position in the third letter to Nestorius for he sees such language as suggesting that Christ shares in the divine life by a kind of adopted sonship. But note also that as Cyril describes Christ's true sonship, uh, one you know, where the human nature is hypostatically united to uh, the person of the word, that the question of our adoptive filiation naturally comes up. Cyril often pairs his description of Christ with comments on human sanctification. This features subtly in conciliar texts, but comes to the fore in his scripture commentaries. So I would like to turn now to a few examples of this from the Catena Aurea, attending especially to how Cyril helped Aquinas articulate grace as a participation in the divine nature. Um, so there's a little backstory to this. Um, one thing is that Joseph Warrico uh, recently wrote a chapter on grace in Aquinas and focused mostly on Augustine. And then at the end, suggested that possibly Cyril plays a role in uh, Aquinas's theology of grace that's been unexplored. Uh, because Cyril uses the um, verse from 2 Peter 1.4 over 40 times in his writing. This idea that we'd be made participate, participants in divine nature. And Daria Spezzano, um, in her book, The Glory of God's Grace, notices that the first place where um, the first place where we see this phrase participatio divina nature in Aquinas, rather than the Latin Vulgate's consortio divina nature, occurs in the Catena Aurea. So what I'd like to do is go to those two places in the Catena Aurea where we have this language of participation in the divine nature. And we're going to see that Cyril's commentary on Luke is not as straightforward as conciliar pronouncements, um, and it's less systematic 
as well when Aquinas puts it together with the fathers. And yet I say that the exposition of the gospel text does play a critical role for both theologians' understanding of Christ and for sanctification. So um, the first example comes from Jesus' baptism. Um, after Jesus is baptized by John, Luke reports that full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And this is number three on your handout. Aquinas opens the Lexio with Theophylact, who warns the reader that we, like Christ, should expect to experience temptation after baptism. Um, in this, the Catena and Lucum is much like that of Matthew and Mark, who also uh, draw a connection between Christ's temptation and our temptation. Yet Aquinas then cites Cyril, who takes the Lexio in a bit of a different direction, considering the precedent Christ has set for the baptized faithful. He says, Now that we have been enriched with the gift of regeneration by water and the Spirit, we are made partakers of the divine nature by participation of the Holy Spirit. But the firstborn among many brethren first received the Spirit, who himself is also the giver of the Spirit, that we through him might also receive the grace of the Holy Spirit. Let us first attend to the claim that Christ is both recipient and giver of the Spirit. This is a retort to Nestorius, who claimed that Christ's human nature was united to the word in a kind of relational participation, which was condemned in conciliar texts, as we saw above. And in the Acts of Constantinople II, Aquinas would also have read texts from Nestorius's teacher, Theodore of Mopsuestia, on this very passage from Luke that was condemned. Uh, Theodore calls Christ's baptism, uh, or Theodore remarks of Christ's baptism that the father called him son through adoption according to grace. But for Cyril, Christ does not receive a spirit he does not already possess, nor does he stand in need of uh, filial adoption since his human nature is substantially united to the word. Christ is not only the recipient of the spirit in his human nature, but as one divine person, he is also spiritus dator. Um, this does take Aquinas' reflections in the Catena on Luke beyond those of Matthew and Mark. But Aquinas has already clearly established Christ's dual role of giving and receiving the Spirit above in the Catena on Luke, uh, chapter 3, Lexio 7. He quotes Chrysostom, Augustine, and Athanasius on this point. So why would Aquinas see fit to return to the subject and include further reflections by Cyril? at the beginning of chapter four. I believe it is because in this particular passage, Cyril's rejection of Antiochene language lends itself to pondering the implications of Christ's fullness of spirit for us and for our salvation. Christ being full of the spirit makes possible our reception of the Holy Spirit in baptism. The beloved son is the firstborn of many brethren, the one by whom we have become partakers in the divine nature. Cyril's use of the phrase participatio divina nature, drawing on 2 Peter 1.4, at once grounds our participation in the divine nature in Christ and sets Christ apart as no mere human recipient of the Spirit. 
And I will not read the quotation from Origin of Alexandria that comes after, but you can see that Aquinas there has found this quotation from Origin that uh, distinguishes the way the apostles received the Spirit from the way Christ received the Spirit. And he says, don't confuse the two. The second instance of uh, the language of participation in the divine nature occurs in the commentary on Luke uh, chapter 7, verse 28, uh, where Thomas treats Christ's claim that among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. And this is number four on your handout. He cites Cyril five times in this lexio. The last, a mystical interpretation of the text, contrasts John the Baptist, natus mulierum, with Christ himself, born by the Holy Spirit, per spiritum sanctum natus. He says, but in a mystery, when showing the superiority of John among those that are born of women, he places in opposition something greater, namely himself, who was born by the Holy Spirit, the Son of God. One might expect at this point an elaboration on Christ's divinity, but instead Cyril applies this distinction between John and Christ to those under the law and those under the spirit, again quoting 2 Peter 1.4. Although then as respects works and holiness, we may be inferior to those who attain the mystery of the law, whom John represents, yet through Christ we have greater things being made partakers of the divine nature. So here again, Cyril's comments on Christ's hypostatic unity come with reflection on human sanctification. Christ is no mere human subject receiving the Holy Spirit, but the one per spiritum sanctum natus, making it possible for humans too to partake of the divine nature. I'm going to skip text five, uh, where Christ uh, talks about, uh, where Christ reads Isaiah in the temple and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Um, but it, that's there for you to read if you'd like. It was important um, for the second council of uh, Constantinople because Theodore of Mopsuestia commented on that text. Okay. So in this presentation, I propose that studying the Catena Aurea can deepen our understanding of Aquinas as master of Greek patristic wisdom. After considering the Greek context of Aquinas' life and thought, I described the resources Aquinas received for the Catena Aurea. I then showed how Cyril of Alexandria's commentary on Luke deepened Aquinas' contact with the Christology he'd received through conciliar texts. This Christology was accompanied by a theology of sanctification that supplied Aquinas with language and concepts that were important for his own mature teaching on grace, namely the idea of grace as a participation in the divine nature and its connection to the idea of adopted sonship. These are just a few of the many riches to be mined from the Catena Aurea, a valuable work that can help us understand Aquinas as master of the sacred page spiritual master, and master of Greek patristic wisdom. Thank you.